straight talk about the issues you care about the most. It's LaVise Dinklaville, Empowerment for the Culture. Now, your hosts, Dr. Will LaVise and Dr. Eric Claville. Hey, I'm Will LaVise. He's Eric Claville. You're tuning into LaVise and Claville, where we give it to you straight the way it is from a black male's perspective, because it's like that, and that's the way it is. It is. Let's get to today's show. The election results and the impact on the black community. Election day in November this year yielded some interesting results. Oh, yeah. Pittsburgh got its first black mayor in Ed Ganey, who's a native of Pittsburgh. Now, now you can't talk about black history in America without talking about <laughs> Pittsburgh. And here we are in 20 and 2021 uh, going on 2022 and Pittsburgh's got his first black mayor. So okay. congratulations to him. Uh, Eric Adams uh, in my native city of New York becomes the city's second black mayor. And I can remember being there and voting for David Dinkins, the first. Winsome Sears in Virginia became the first Lieutenant Governor, first black woman, Lieutenant Governor, and also the first uh, black woman to win a statewide election. So she should be congratulated for that. Tyrone Garner will be the first black man in Kansas City. Bruce Harold becomes the first Asian American and second black person to lead Seattle as mayor. And you also have uh, Michelle Wu is the first woman uh, and person of color to be elected Boston's mayor. And then also in Cincinnati, you had Aftab Pureval, forgive me if I messed up the name, as its first Asian mayor. So if the Democrats are the party of the Big Tent and all this diversity, why are the Democrats feeling so sad and blue, and yes, blue, and yes, the pun is intended, about Virginia? Tell me, Cavill, what's what happened in Virginia and, and and why nationwide is this talk about, well, this is some kind of a death sentence for the Democratic Party. Right. Well, I, first of all, Will, I think when you talk about death sentence, I think that's going a little bit too far. But mm -hmm. this is a definitely wake up call. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I host a radio show called State of the Water on Norfolk State University's right. uh, Virginia's largest historically black college and university, HBCU on um, 91.1 FM. You can also catch it on WNSBonline.org. That's WNSBonline.org. And uh, for the past couple of years I've been on the show, I've hosted, I have hosted what's called a Conversation with the Candidate series. Mm -hmm. In a Conversation with the Candidate series, we also break down each, uh, each uh, race, break down the candidates, I've had all of our U.S. Congresspersons in the, from this area, our U.S. Senators uh, for, the, for the state. I've had our mayors, I've had our delegates, I've had our state senators, I've had uh, our Commonwealth Attorney candidates, city council persons, all of them have been on the show. Right? Mm -hmm. So I've had, I've had the conversation with them. And uh, we've also hosted some debates as, as well uh, for those offices. And all through this race, one thing that I, I saw is that how the McCulloch campaign was running uh, a very high profile, and when I say high profile, a high pro name profile campaign, um, very nice commercials, impactful commercials, 
getting doing what needed to be done to to secure the elected official endorsement right. because you know you work from the bottom down when you when you go from from that aspect. But the Yonkin campaign did they work from the bottom up hmm. because what happens a lot of uh, he's a businessman never been in politics so he built a grassroots uh, base. Uh, there was a lot of juggling there hmm. trying to embrace Trump but not em- embrace Trump's voters but not embrace Trump. And also on the other side, connecting him to Trump and and, and the like. At the end of the day, <laughs> what happened is that grassroots won this election. Now, keep in mind, the McCullough campaign was up between 9 and 10. And sometimes it shrank to seven percentage points, all right. the way up to the last debate. The last debate, Will. And all the other candidates, uh, the lieutenant governor candidate, the attorney general candidate, the House of Delegates, they were all up by similar margins in their in their district, even those that were competitive. Hmm. Because Trump was hanging over the heads of the Republicans. January 6th was hanging over the heads of the Republicans. And nobody could really break the Trump code. Hmm. But Trump was fairly solid in a way. And Chris Christie made a statement with these games. He said, these games can only be realized and duplicated if you know, Trump stays solid. Okay, keep in mind, it just wasn't the issues, but it was the combination of the issues plus Trump being solid. And that's almost impossible for him to remain silent, but he did a pretty good job of it. He did a good job. I mean, when, when your back's up against the wall, it's kind of like uh, as a businessman, when you see that your investment is, is failing, you still, you tend to listen to your advisors then because right. you want to get out of that hole. So he, he did a good job doing that. But what happened, Will, is that, well, they took in the last debate, uh, former Governor Terry McCullough made a statement about it, uh, parents not should, should not have a say in what their kids interfering with what their kids are learning. Now, mm. they took that snippet, they didn't play the entire statement, of course, not of course, not, not. the entire statement where again discussion was had where parents had an opportunity to influence by participating in school board meetings, joining the PTA, and the like, right. So that discussion was had after that 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 message uh, was given. But the Republicans, Youngkin, took that snippet and created messaging around it, right? That right. messaging around it. And that me- messaging encompassed three things. It encompassed the conversation about vaccine and mass mandates. It encompassed the discussion of CRT, which dealt with race. All right. Basically teaching the full American history. Critical right. race theory, critical CRT, critical race theory, right. which is not taught in public right. school, but right. it really dealt with teaching black history. In other words, the full history of slavery and really the atrocities right. uh, that were perpetuated upon blacks and Native Americans by white settlers here in this country. Right. And then the third issue that it encompassed was also the issue of bathroom and sports policies as relates to transgender children, right? So you had that, that was the undergirding of that education message. So then a grassroots campaign was created out of education around freedom, freedom of choice Mm. by hashtag parents matter. Mm. So rallies were being held, grassroots campaign were being held in the suburban areas of strongholds of the state. Right. Those were so impactful because here's what happened. You ended up having, during the time of Biden and Trump, where you had the male, which voted more than likely for Donald Trump, and the female voted for Joe Biden because 
of the things of just the trauma that former President Trump needed upon America and the things that he was saying. And I mean, you just can't say those things, right? So it was a lot of embarrassment. And then January 6th, I mean, it was just, I mean, how can you vote and support a party that embraced January 6th? That was terrible, absolutely right. terrible. Right. But this issue will effectively, and Trump being solid, wipe Trump and January 6th off the ballot. Right, because a lot of people were tired. A lot of people were tired of talking about Trump and tired of, yeah, of talking about these things anyway. And this issue of education has people, you know, you talk about parents, education, their kids. That's a that's a winning that's a winning combination anytime. People are passionate about their kids and and, and then you add the white identity politics around it and you know CRT and and all of that. You've got a you've got a winner that raises people's passions, which is what you need if you're going to get out of vote. And which is what <laughs> the Democrats over and over, oftentimes, seem to lack. You know they they left grassroots grassroots mm-hmm. campaigning, grassroots organizing, grassroots voter registration. Now keep in mind that this campaign I've always said it because I, I do local analysis for the local TV uh, affiliates here and and also the radio show that I do. And then, of course, as a commentator on our good sister, friend, Barbara Hanley's Another View, which you and I uh, were on. Uh, there'll be a link available on our website. You can take listen to it. Uh, we were on Another View. Another yeah, View really radio just, yeah. uh, this week on Thursday, talking about the election and the impact that happened on Tuesday. So we'll going back to those two votes, those two votes that were split for Trump and Biden actually now voted for Yunkin. Mm. Went, they went to the right, right? Mm. And when they went that way, the margin, of, the margin of victory was pretty much that margin of vote, right. that 2% margin of victory in the suburbs where parent, hashtag parents matter, that education message around choice really resonated. Now, to his credit, the early voting benefits the Democratic candidate more so than the not. And over 1.1 million early votes were cast. That is huge. That is mad. We voted early in my home. Right. Uh, it was very easy to do. It took maybe from, from our car to the front door. I mean, from our car to vote and back. It maybe took 12 minutes, 13 at the most. Mm-hmm. You know, and, you know, it was just a very easy process. And, it's something that we'll continue to do when, when, there, when opportunity is there. But the day of vote, what happened was, is that the red rule states, according to the statistics, the red rule counties outperformed the day of voting. Hmm. So they got out and voted because of that last three and a half weeks of education messaging. Well, <laughs> that message was so powerful. Kevin McCarthy, you know, uh, the congressman uh, leader in the House said, listen, the RNC, we're rolling out an education bill of rights within the next few days. Because I, and they said, we've cracked the Trump code. Y'all can crack the Trump code, right? This is how we compete in blue competitive states. People were saying, oh, you know, was Virginia blue state? Was it leaning blue? It was blue, right? Well, I mean, was it purple? It was it's blue. Election of Barack Obama, re-election of Barack Obama, election of of uh, Governor, well, the first election of Terry McCullough, the election of Barack Obama, re-election of Barack Obama, the election of 
uh, Northern, right. and then also the election of Joe Biden. I mean, <laughs> oh, but but then you know that's in Virginia. You still have a lot of rural areas are very red. I mean, in the major city areas in Absolutely. Northern Virginia, is very much Democratic strongholding in the area where you're at. Hampton Roads, Newport News, uh, Virginia Beach. Well, Virginia Beach is uh, Republican country. It can go either way. Do you you really feel strongly that um, it was that education message that really did it for McCullough, or were there other problems? Because they really didn't go out and rally the the troops and the, and the inspiration for the black and Latino vote who are traditionally uh, voted their way. Um, McCulloch was looking to do something that is really nearly the impossible. It, it, was, it wasn't until the last time a governor, because a lot of people don't know that Virginia, you, you, all the governors in one term, Virginia is not, right. you know, they, they, don't, they don't like their governors to be around so long. Right. So you get one term, do what you're going to do. And you, you know, you're out. It wasn't back in, you got to go back to 1960 to get a former governor winning again to become a governor. And that governor, I forget his name, but I understand that governor had to change parties in order to do it. Yeah. So you were asking Terry McCullough to do something that is really relatively impossible to do in Virginia. Plus, he had the, his party is in power in Washington, which normally leads to a backlash in terms of when people look at what's going on nationally and, and the governors in play and, okay, this is the governor's same party. Virginia usually go the other way. So is it just this education issue or were there some other problems there because i tend to think there's some other issues there with this with this candidate and with how democrats continue to stumble on their own feet and then and in their own arrogance when it comes to running certain campaigns well well some people call it monday morning quarterbacking mm -hmm. but let's take a look at this article from newsweek okay which came out uh november 4th 2021 and for Person like you, you and I, who are, grew up on print media, Newsweek was the publication yeah. that you yeah. got, you know, for in-depth, good analysis, deep analysis about uh, issues happening that la that that last week or that week. Mm -hmm. uh, so you know, we had Newsweeks all through, you know, where we were. But it's entitled "The Worst Campaign I've Ever Been Involved In." Yeah. <laughs> Democrats blast McCulloch in Virginia. All right. This is Newsweek, November 4, 2021. Atima O'Mara knew something was wrong. The Virginia Democratic National Committee member and expert to black voters was looking for a sign, any sign, <laughs> that Terry McCullough's campaign was doing the basic blocking and tackling necessary to energize black voters and eke out a win in a surprisingly competitive Virginia's governor's race, uh -huh. but she wasn't seeing much. Visiting her family in Southern Virginia in October, she finally heard radio ads on black radio stations, perhaps due to late hour infusion of new ads by the DNC, including 
-hmm. in an earlier $6 million investment aimed in part at, at voters of color. But her mother, a mm. consistent voter, even in special elections, was worried, wondering, where are the Democrats? Who did she get a visit from? <laughs> All right, here it goes. <laughs> Republican Glenn Youngkin's campaign had knocked on her door, but McCullough's had not. Ooh. Quote, it was the worst campaign I've ever been involved in, says Caitlin Bennett, chair of the Fredericksburg Democratic Committee, told Newsweek. So they said that even before the death settled on Youngkin's 50.7% to 48.6% Victor McCullough on Tuesday night, fingers were already being pointed hmm. at a campaign that is said to have neglected Black and Latino voters in favor of chasing white suburban women hmm. who abandoned Democrats in the end anyway. It shows, it says in 2020, presidential election, Virginia, for example, as Joe Biden among white women, 50% to 49%. That's a small mm -hmm. thing. But Yonkin turned the tables and beat McCullough 57% to 43. That's a suburban uh, wife, mother, uh, that I mentioned earlier that actually went, quote, stop expecting white women voters, especially in the suburbs, to save the Democratic agenda, Omar wrote in a Twitter thread Wednesday. They aren't loyal. Dance with the people who bring you to the dance. Hmm. So I ask you, so is it just the education issue or were there other problems going on here? Because it seems to me that the numbers are in the favor of the Democratic Party. Absolutely. So if you just inspire your own people to come out again, Youngkin had to. He had to go all stops again. He has got the ground game. He's he's not neglecting black voters. He's going to ground game and saying, "Look, vote for me. All who all who may come, come and vote for me." So it would seem that if you just inspire your own people to come out and be excited about your candidacy and be excited about what it is that you say you are going to do for them, not telling them about how this guy is connected to the to the past president, the old president who was gone, but talking about what you are going to do for people, what you're going to get done, and you get people excited, it seems to me that whether he made that gaffe or not, he, he would be able to overcome any votes that he might have lost there. So is it just that or is it something else going? Yeah, you know, Will, I, I think that that article sums it up. I mean, those are, that's not pundits. Those are people that work right. for the Virginia DNC. Hmm. Those are people who are been campaigning for the DNC for ages. Uh, and those are people that are speaking out. And in that uh, article, they also talk about how some of them talk about how they offered to get involved and offered to bring their expertise and reaching Latino voters and black voters and those calls went unanswered. Huh? The other people were not there to, to defend themselves. But why was why would somebody, you know, say that's the case? But again, it speaks to what many have talked about, this kind of arrogance, this kind of entitlement that, hey, I've been your governor. You know me. You know, you know what I can do and what I've done. And it's like, yeah, yeah, dude, we do know you. And not all of us feel about you in that way that you think. And so exactly. that's that's not necessarily an advantage because you were a governor. Not everybody uh, 
uh, feels the same way about you, and they'll be more willing, as as it appears to be the case, to go with an unknown quantity, quantity, an unknown character, who they think may actually move the needle for them, because what you have been doing and what your party has been doing has not been working for a lot of people. And that's what I think the Democratic Party is just really missing. It's like you you say you want people to come back to the center and that's where America is. But it's like and, and they want the traditional party. But it's like you're not recognizing that if you go back in history, you'll see that this traditional party has not been working for a whole lot of people. That's where the that's where the Occupy Wall Street movement came from. People are yep. saying what you're doing is not working for us. It's not just the, you know, that was a message to the traditional Republican and a message to the traditional Democrat. So it's like, there's an, this seems to be this disconnect of, um, of understanding that what you were doing is not necessarily working. And it's the Occupy Wall Street that led to the movement that AOC and others on the progressive, the strengthening of the progressive wing that's in the Democratic Party now, isn't, isn't that the isn't that the case? That led to that wave of a lot of new candidates coming in and and unseating established Democratic um, uh, uh, people in Congress. I mean, is that the case? Well, 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 I'll go back to that article, you know, because you mentioned calls going unanswered. As a matter of fact. <laughs> is uh, uh, Chuck Rocha. Chuck Rocha is a political strategist, a former senior advisor to Bernie Sanders, 2020 presidential campaign, mm -hmm. who did some work in Virginia's governor's race. He said calls with offers of assistance to the McCulloch campaign when answered. He said Latino operatives reached out to the state party in the McCulloch campaign immediately after the primary to offer our assistance, but no calls were returned. <laughs> uh, he told Newsweek, now, here's the part that you talk, that you mentioned here. And I also want to listen uh, list here as well that 86% black voters gave McCulloch 86% support, according mm -hmm. to exit polls. However, there's still widespread belief, according to this article, that votes were left on the table in an election with a raise within Tuesday morning. And they were. The votes were left on the table. If you look at areas here in Hampton Roads, Richmond, um, also majority black areas, uh, the percentage of voters did not, did not get out, African-American voters, uh, compared to other elections. And mm -hmm. it's because they were not excited. They were not energized. And I've always said this race is about getting your base out to the polls. But right. this is the point I want to get to to answer your question. Uh, this is from uh, Rocha. He said, uh, Latino operatives reached out for calls and assistance, but no calls were returned. He said, we knew that without a black woman or someone at the top of the ticket, mm. basically that this race would be hard to energize people over. You know, and what he's showing is what you just mentioned as it relates to um, the traditional party, uh, individuals who are the, the uh, middle, right. moderate, people saying that it works. Well, does it really work? You know, now don't get me wrong. You know, there are, most people, I believe, are moderate. You know, people want to be able to go to the, come outside, put their key in the car, crank it up, and it works. Right. People want to be able to go to the grocery store, purchase the items that they need, and have some money left over. Both sides people, of the political aisle, yep. Yeah. yeah. 
people want to be able to have enough money left over to take a vacation or to go out to eat maybe once a week, right. even twice, once every other week we, on payday, right? right? That weekend. Right. So for the most part, the average American citizen is in the middle. They don't, because extremes tend to disrupt our lives, whether it be extremes for good or extremes for, for bad or extremes for different, right? Right. So when we talk about what is acceptable, what is not, I believe that most people just want the basics of life and enjoy a few of the spoils every now and then, right? Right. right. So that's what that's what the moderates say we're going to give you. But what's happening is that <laughs> the, 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 the benefits that come down never reach all the way down to the very bottom, mm. right? Except for crumbs. So really, you know, Will, this thing is about starting at the bottom. Mm -hmm. We need policy that goes straight to the bottom, to the workers, to the everyday people. And then those individuals will utilize their gains, their profits, and it goes to the top. You know, but, you know, we have this feeling, you know, we have this idea that the top needs stuff first, right? right. We need to get our stuff first. Uh, but the bottom, the bottom up approach works a whole lot better, more effective. I, I, I give you an example. You know, so you talk about this Occupy Wall Street movement, right? And, and you and I, we've talked about where, you know, you've had a lot of white uh, middle management, uh, individuals in corporate right. that basically lost their jobs, right. lost those six figure jobs and couldn't get them back. Right. And the big cats at the top, the partners, the equity partners. They invest. They say, you know what? We can farm this stuff out, right. and then the same workers that were making one hundred seventy thousand, seventy-five thousand dollars a year is now making seventy dollars an hour. Mm. You know, <laughs> with limited hours. <laughs> yeah, they will. I saw it happen with law firms, big law firms. You know, where they started uh, um, farming this stuff out for do document review and the like. I mean, the highest you got out was maybe seventy-five bucks an hour. Hmm. I mean, but you're talking about even in New York City, you know, how this can, is real. Right? Can, can people, you know, can somebody who was, you know, working, making 185000 starting out as an associate, two fifty dollars uh, after a few years, and then, of course, your bonus, can you make it now on $75 an hour? Right. And then, and then you, you know, you add the impact of automation coming into so many different industries where you no longer need a human body to actually perform the task. I mean, you can see the impact of that just by going to your local supermarket. I mean, you and I remember as kids going through the checkout counter and somebody was actually skilled in the ability to plug in and type in those numbers, right? And would get the price right. Like it was called 10 key touch. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah and now, now, not only is the person not even needed <laughs> to hold the item and scan it, we're we're being called to go and scan it ourselves for the most part. And we're at rapidly moving to you see what's happening with um with Amazon. With if you have Amazon Prime and you go into what is the store? Whole Foods or is it Trader Joe's? Which one do they got? A Whole Foods. Whole Foods. Yeah, yeah, you can you can get your get everything uh, as you go in. You don't even need to go through the traditional scanner that you go through in the Safeway. 
So when you see the impact of automation and people, like you said, on the ground level are seeing the realities of these things in their daily lives. And I believe we talked about this on Barbara's show that a lot of people who are out here protesting and out here and are, and are passionate of voting, they're looking for someone who is going to pay attention to what their needs are and deliver something for them. And I think that um, that's where I speak about kind of the arrogance of the Democratic Party of, again, uh, Terry McAuliffe, who led um, uh, Hillary Clinton's uh, first campaign when she went up against Barack Obama and laws for much of the same reasons. And then she lost, she lost the primary for much of the same kind of approach reason, and then came and runs for president and, and, and falls victim to the same kind of, you know, intellectual campaign disease. And it's like, when are you all going to understand this element that's going on that you've got to pay attention to? Again, focusing on what is really going to get your base passionate. Then I mentioned, I mentioned Obama. So he brings out Obama <laughs> at the rally, like that's going to do it. And it's like, okay, have you, are you coming to grips with the fact that we had eight years of Obama administration and a lot of the same people that we're talking about, their lives were not dramatically changed during that time. Uh, Obamacare was impactful for many people, but Republicans strategically kept that impact out of a lot of states where people need that kind of services, right? right? So what happened? Was it just a white lash that happened that brought Trump in? Or was it an another effort of let's go with somebody who is an unknown, well, in this case, a known quantity, but maybe he is going to do something different. And he played he played that angle like a fiddle. Perfect. The white, identi the white identity politics, the, oh, I love the uneducated and so forth. He played that. He pimped that to the hilt. And then they cheered it. <laughs> yeah, because you knew that. You knew as you were watching this and you predicted that he was going to win, you knew that he wasn't going, he could care less about any of these folks that he's talking about. But he was astute enough to understand that he could win by speaking to them because he, knowing Hillary Clinton, knowing the Clinton, I mean, he, those are his people. Those are his, his friends and contemporary. He knows them well. He knows she was never going to speak to those issues. And I see McCullough very much, again, evoking that same kind of sentiment. And I'm I'm wondering, like you said, you at the earlier at the top of the show, you said it was a wake-up call. Yeah. I'm wondering, hey, maybe this is the best thing that's happened to the Democratic Party, that they will finally wake up. Yeah. Um honestly, I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> because you know, listen, you know how it I'm is. Not the pessimistic word, man. <laughs> no, no, listen. I'm, I, look, I am a realist, right? I am the most optimistic person that you ever want to meet, uh, but I'm, I'm a realist, which means that I'm realistic about my optimism. Mm 
<laughs> and, 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 and when I say I don't think it's going to happen, because, well, you know how it is. You know, when we're talking to each other, you know, and we don't get out and talk to the people hmm. because we know what's best for them. You can clearly, <laughs> clearly, I know you live in your community every day. I know that you grew up there. I know that your mom and dad in there grew up there. Wow. I know that they raised the children. I know your grandparents are staples of that community. Clearly, I know that. Mm. But understand, I know what's better for you <laughs> than you know what's better for you. Uh-huh. I mean, so that's the mentality. That's the idea on both sides. Right. right? I'm not just saying, you know, this is just not a Democratic issue. This is a re- re- Republican issue. It's, it's really, you know... It's a class issue. It's a class. It's a, you know it's a socioeconomic class issue. Yeah. You know what? You you took words right out of my mouth. I was going to say I was watching the the movie Shooter I, again. I think maybe for the fourth four hundred time now, uh, because of course it runs <laughs> over and over. But I, I see something different in that movie every time. Of course, that's a uh, Antoine Fuquay movie that stars uh, Mark Wahlberg, Danny Glover, and uh, you know. The senator, the, the actor that plays the senator, you know, he, of course, Mark Warbury is about patriotism and the like. And he says, son, there's no Republicans or Democrats. <laughs> he said, there's, he said, there's only those that have and those <laughs> that have not. Yep. <laughs> you know, and he said, it's, it's, it's basically it's the elitist. It's, it's the elitist. And he summed it up perfectly. He said, there is no difference. You either have or you don't. So you got millionaires that are arguing amongst themselves in Washington what's best for people on the ground, <laughs> which, 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 which brings me to, you know, when we lose connection, right? There is a tendency to get to a place of success where you lose connection with the people on the ground. Hmm. You know, my wife and I were talking about this the other day, and I told her, she mentioned someone that I mentioned why I admire Warren Buffett so much. Warren Buffett says he lives in the middle of the country in the same house he and his wife spend it. You know, in Omaha, Nebraska, Mm -hmm. Will ain't nothing popping off in Omaha, Nebraska, but some good steaks, right? I mean, that's that's probably the the most center of America you can get. Right. You know. It's not Miami. It's not New York. It's not L.A. It's Omaha, Nebraska. It's Omaha, Nebraska. <laughs> good old folk. Good folk. Good That's living. Right. And then you know what? He said, I got my routine. He's got his routine. You know, his basic routine. Go. He's got the place he go to to get eat the hamburger he likes to eat. <laughs> you know, he drives the vehicle that he likes to drive, right? But he says, it gives him, he said, I can fly to New York. I can fly to L.A. I can fly to, first of all, I can fly to D.C., he said, but I'm, I get out of those, those areas because if you get out of the bubble, he said, I can think right. and I can connect and really process things. Right. In other words, he stays true to his roots, to his right. foundation. Right. right Now, I will say my, my congressman and I think one of not the smartest congressman on Capitol Hill, we're fortunate to have him, Congressman Bobby Scott. I, he is, if, if it's a community event, he's going to be there. One day he showed up at my church because I started getting involved in politics there when, early on when I moved here. And he showed up at my church and he beat me there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's around. I covered Bobby. He, he definitely gets around. He definitely has it, makes his presence known. Absolutely. Community. I mean, you'll see him and people have that story. Like 
he came, you know, he was walking the neighborhood and he was playing catch with my son. Right. right? <laughs> you know, he just took out time to play catch. U.S. congressman, well-known, well-versed, well-respected, right. playing catch in the front yard. Right. You, know, it's that, you know, so it's those types of things where you stay connected to the community. People like Dr. King, Dr. King stayed connected right. to the people where everybody else was trying to ascend <laughs> to the higher ranks. When he died, and I, I talk about this all the time, Will, he died fighting for sanitation workers. Trash yeah, poor people. Poor people's much. Yeah. yeah. You know, so to me, it shows when you are connected to the people, that humility. And I looked at, uh, like I said, we were able to host an event with Pharrell Williams. I was able to serve on a panel with him. And just his humility, mm-hmm. you know, and his connection on the ground. You know, being able to fly across the world, do whatever he wants to do. But being able to be connected to just where he grew up. Right. I mean, he could, he could insert himself right back into where he grew up because he never left, for the most part, that connection. So I think the problem ends up being the reason why I don't think it'll get better because you have too many people that have left their connection, the neighborhood, the the the, the hood. You, you got to stay connected on the ground to your people, to the neighborhood, the ones that prayed for you, that encouraged you, that got you to where you are today. Hmm. You got to stay connected to them. So essentially you're saying that there's this tone deafness that's going on in the party. That, so <laughs> yeah. but there's but then you've also got people who are in the communities who are you know operatives of the party and working on the ground levels. Are you saying that and they, and actually we're in these campaigns? Mm-hmm. So are they just not being listened to? Do they just not have the influence that they claim to have? Because we got people, I mean, we've all, again, I, I was a columnist in the Hampton and Newport News area and talked with politicos and people who are on the ground who would have been leading a lot of this ground game um, activity. Is it that they don't really have the clout that they claim to have, or is it still very much about, you know, the candidate? Well, how, how, how does that work? Because I'm just still struck by how in Virginia, why do you bring back this, this candidate? You had the, had the opportunity to actually have, we talked at the end, of, at the beginning of the show about all of these different first black or second black candidates that were able to win major offices. In Virginia, you had, come on, you had to have had some opportunity to raise up some new blood, some new exciting, engaging uh, candidates, people of color to run for this governor's office. Why? I mean, why would you rely on a, what essentially is a retread candidate? to try to do the impossible that had not been done since 1960. And that candidate who was the governor and became governor again, changed parties. I mean, are you saying, what is going on with the, with the, uh, to use a baseball analogy, what's, you know, what's going on with the bullpen? Who, who's, who's on deck? Where's the farm system 
in terms of bringing up candidates. And I think about, I mentioned Obama, I think about, and we talked about this on the on Barbara's show. You know, I'm in the stadium covering his first election and seeing the sea of people and this energy and people are very excited and, and younger people, you know, about getting into politics. And I'm like, where did those people go? That was nearly 20 years. That was that was more than 10 years ago. Yeah. I mean, where did these people go that were in their 20s and or in their 30s? Why are they not now? coming up out of the farm system and running for these higher offices. What 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 happened? What's going well, on? Well, we all just like any farm system, you gotta get an invite, right? <laughs> you just you just can't walk into a team and say, I want to join the team. So and you're talking about these folks are not like McCullough and others are not getting out of the way. They're not grooming new, young, exciting Talent. I mean, what are they doing? Well, I mean, think about it. Let's go back to the Democratic primary. Hmm. I mean, you had uh, two uh, African American women, uh, one delegate, one state city state senator. Right. You had an African American male, a current a lieutenant governor, and then you also also had one young uh, white male uh, from the southwestern part of the state that was more progressive than the, that part of the state. Right. And that state is red. And then, of course, you have the uh, former uh, governor who actually got the nomination, won the nomination. So when we talk about individuals, the farm system, I mean, we had several candidates that were pretty proven in, mm -hmm. in what they were in what they did, you know, running in their delegate uh, district, uh, running in their Senate district, which is a little wider. And then, of course, lieutenant governor receiving more votes than any lieutenant governor candidate uh, in the history. Wow. And it was a black male up and coming. Uh, so, you know, that's a that's a question that really the party has to answer. Each party has to answer, because if you think about it, the Republican side got lucky. You yeah. know, they got a guy that didn't have any political baggage, <laughs> you know. But don't get me wrong. I think there was another a candidate, if not two, on the Republican slate that were a really good candidate. I think the former Speaker of the House yeah. uh, uh, was really a good candidate. Uh, that would have fared extremely well against McCullough also, mm -hmm. um, just as just as well as uh, Yunkin did. Uh, probably even better in the very beginning. But again, it's it's really both sides when you really think about it. You get a candidate that's never that's proven in business, and again, we look at compare Trump and the governor as relates to governor elect as relates to their experience, their experience only. That's all I compared it to. Okay, right. So they were both successful in business. So when you look at that, Will, I think that the, the, the question you have to ask yourself is, what is it that these parties want to be moving forward? If we know that it is a ground, we know it's a grassroots um, uh, issue, then how do you solve that issue? Now, don't get me wrong. It's not like the Republicans created this um, grassroots campaign for good policy for everybody, right? Basically, the undergirding of this are wedge issues <laughs> for the most part. So they're going to copy and paste these new wedge issues mm -hmm. against uh, across the country again, which is reminiscent again of 2008, you know, with Obama, 2008, 2009. You understand mm -hmm. what I'm saying? So that's, an, you know, I, I believe that's, that's what we're, we're seeing moving forward. Uh, but I think 
your point, that issue has to be solved with who are we raising up? Who are we now equipping to take our place right. of these not 60-year-old politicians, but, but the 70-year-old politicians yeah. that their greatest legacy can really be that of a king maker right. as opposed to wanting to be a king forever. You know, when you talk about legacy, I think about, um, you know, Flora Crittenden, you know, a long time uh, delegate in Virginia who recently passed and you know, I'm remembering when I came to the Daily Press as a, the first black Metro columnist in the house. She was very, you know, encouraging, very happy to see me again. But still, you know, you had to keep that distance of a politician in the press. But she's very encouraging and very much a woman of um, of dignity and, you know, condolences to the family. Who I've gotten to know some of the you know family members, a son, a daughter and others. Um, but I, I think about her as this type of mentor. Mary Christian would be another one. Maybe Bicot, Bicot uh, was also, you know. Also passed away. Also, also passed. And I, I think about them and I think about her and I say, who is coming up that is of that kind of, you know, cloth for this generation? You know, she was someone who came up, you know, these, these are baby boomers, you know, and they came up, you know, through the civil rights era and was part of that, you know, that first uh, generation that came in, you know, through in the 70s and, and so forth. You know, they but they were, you know, they were they were titans. And I wonder who is cultivating, you know, that kind of leadership coming up now among, um, you know, African-American Politicians. I mean, what do you what do you see happening? I don't see anything happening. Wow. You know, but I think I think there's room for opportunity. Mm -hmm. I know that um, Virginia State University, the second, uh, the oldest public uh, HBCU in the state, and and um, the uh, second public in, uh, public institution HBCU uh, has a leadership training. Mm -hmm. um, uh, institute that they've just started, gotten off the ground with that in mind, hmm. creating future leaders moving forward, uh, African-American leaders. There's also a couple of other lead, uh, leadership institutes around the area. I know uh, Virginia Commonwealth University has one. Uh, UVA does have one as well. Uh, so there are, there, you do have institutes where people graduate from and, but are they really graduating to get the certification and the designation yeah. Uh, more so than really having a pipeline, which I think what you're referring to, to go and prepare for this office, this office, and that office. Uh, there are no pipelines there available. Hmm. But uh, there is a new uh, institute program that um, current Delegate Jay Jones, who ran for Attorney General, um, also is part of starting as well. And it's very new, just started with that idea in mind. But again, uh, creating that pipeline. But these are all new. But to your point, these are not, again, intentional until there is a crisis, right? Yeah. So I think I think the, the career, the professionals in politics don't see a crisis. They just think that, hey, I think, I think you just have to understand that I know better what's for you than you. So we're still at that point. 
because everybody's pointing fingers at the wrong individual instead of looking in the mirror. But mm-hmm. hey, we shall see, right? Yeah. We can always we can always build a better rat trap, right? <laughs> yeah, we'll see. But it's but, not looking good. But I am optimistic that we'll get it right. The question becomes, will we get it right in time? So once again, we thank you guys for joining us for this segment of LaVis and Clavel as we talk about the impact of election 2021 on the black community. And join us us for future segments as we talk about the impact leading into 2022, 2024, and other cultural black tax and issues affecting you as African-Americans in our country together. So like us, share us on our social media, at LaVisa and Clavel, that's at LaVisa and Clavel on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and go to our website at www.lavisclavel.com. Until next time, that's the way it is, and we'll see. God bless. Thanks for listening to another episode of La Vista and Claville. Make sure you subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. For information or to connect with La Vista and Claville, check out our website at www.lavistclaville.com. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to At the La Vista and Claville on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. This has been the latest episode of La Vista and Claville. <laughs>